everyone. I'm Rebecca Crook Stratton, and I'm here with a special edition of our podcast. I'm on site at the National Congress of American Indians Mid-Year Conference, which our tribe is hosting this June. The National Congress of American Indians is the oldest and largest organization comprised of tribal governments. Its mission is to preserve tribal sovereignty and treaty rights, protect the cultures of Native Americans and Alaska Natives, and educate the American public about Native peoples. I've been honored to serve as one of its regional vice presidents representing the Midwest. I took a few minutes during the convention to catch up with other Native leaders and talk about what's important in tribal communities today. One note before the special episode begins. We recorded these interviews the week of June 5th, before the U.S. Supreme Court voted to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act, also referred to by the acronym ICWA. Several of our guests discussed the case in anticipation of the decision, which was issued the next week. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision recognizes the sovereign status of tribal governments and the fact that there is no resource more vital to the continued existence of tribes than their children. The SMSC applauds the court's majority for prioritizing the well-being of Native children and the tribal communities where those children belong. Now let's begin the episode. I'm here this afternoon with Senator Tina Smith. Uh, She came to address the General Assembly here at the NCAI Mid-Year in Prior Lake, Minnesota. Senator Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Rebecca. I'm so glad to be here. And it was exciting to be be an honor. I was honored to be able to speak at uh, uh, NCAI and wonderful that Shakopee is hosting this really important event. Senator Smith, you do some really important work on behalf of Indian Country. Uh, you sit on the Senate Committee for Indian Affairs. Can you tell us a little bit about your work there and maybe highlight um, some of the most important or work maybe you're most proud of? Well, um, I sit on the Senate Indian Affairs Committee, which I am very proud of. And I also, the other committees that I sit on as well, Health Committee, the Agriculture Committee in particular, um, and Banking Housing, I'm always thinking about how the work that we do um, impacts um, tribal nations and urban indigenous communities and what we can do to make sure that those issues are front and center. So here's a couple of examples. Um, On the Senate Indian Affairs Committee and on agriculture, we're working right now on the farm bill and um, a lot of effort has has gone into um, how to make the farm bill really responsive to um, tribal nations and um, native communities. Um, of course, Shakopee has been a real leader in this um, in this area, and we're working right now to put together provisions that would go into the big farm bill, which is reauthorized every five years. This is the year provisions that would support um, um, food sovereignty, allowing for improved opportunities for native products to be included in food distribution programs, protecting the integrity of um, of um, native food like wild rice. And um, also thinking about broader opportunities for self-governance, including um, in forestry, which is, a, which is an important thing. So I'm really proud of that work and grateful for the partnership with the Native Farm Bill Coalition. Senator Smith, thank you so much for your work on the Farm Bill. I know five years ago when it was reauthorized, there was a historic amount of um, things in the Farm Bill that had a positive impact on Indian country. So uh, we look forward to, to seeing that come to fruition yeah. again this year, and I'm sure it will because of your advocacy advocacy and your work. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. It's great to have a chance to visit. Absolutely. Have a good day. 
Uh, I'm here at Mystic Lake Casino for the NCAI Mid-Year Conference, and I have with me Chairman Robert Duchamp from Graham Portage. Chairman Duchamp, you've got some really great initiatives going on up at Graham Portage, and one of those is co-management of Superior National Forest. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was um, something that came from Lutz and Mountains put in for an SUP to double the size of their ski area. So we started meeting with the Forest Service and um, telling them our priorities within the Superior National Forest. Uh, One of the important things within the 1854 treaty boundary is we started out with 6.2 million acres and we have less than 20% of that left now to hunt, fish, and gather. So Grand Portage, Fond du Lac, and Boys Fort um, started meeting quarterly with the Forest Service and we came up with the idea to sign an MOU with them to co-manage the forest. Um, A lot of work went into it. It actually went really fast for how government works. Um, Within a year, we were able to start it and have it signed by all three bands. Um, It gives us a lot of, gives us a seat at the table um, for management of resources, being able to look at leases, SUPs, and just being at the table in general when it comes to the very little land that we have left there. So it was pretty exciting to have it happen. Um, Another thing that we, I guess I could add to that too there, another thing is we can have the ability to pick out um, TCP properties within the boundaries, the tribal or traditional cultural properties. So that helped us out too. Um, Another thing we were working on is we're working on a co-management agreement with uh, Isle Royal National Park. That's um, in the works right now. It's going to be a long process also since we're dealing with another state. But some of the stuff we're working on up in Grand Portage that's happening now. Yeah, I think tribal management of lands, um, I think tribes are better stewards of the lands. They manage it, you know, for seven generations is is the philosophy. And having the ability to to co-manage and ensure those lands are taken care of for your people for generations to come. Is a really wonderful opportunity. So thank you for all your work and being a good steward of the earth. Thank you. I have the honor of being joined by Executive Director of the National Congress of American Indians, Larry Wright Jr. Larry, thanks so much for being with us mm-hmm. today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so you and your staff have put a lot of work into this year's mid-year conference, which is really uh, a large focus is on environmental sustainability and climate resistance. Uh, tell us a little bit about why that's important and why uh, the mid-year chose to focus on that. Well, you know, we know in Indian country that uh, climate change is, is affecting our tribes first and foremost. Uh, we're, we're kind of the miner's canary in, in that regards where some of the worst effects are being felt in tribal communities. Um, and it doesn't really matter where you are in this country, from Alaska to the coast of the United States to the, the interior, where and with extreme weather and, and all the different events that are affecting agriculture, uh, hunting and fishing uh, uh, populations and, and all points in between. And, and I think for, for us, when we hear that, as we listen to Indian country, in, in all these different areas and, and how the weather systems, the climate has affected uh, almost every tribe in the country in, in some form or fashion. It's something that uh, we've continued to hear needs to be addressed. 
and bringing everybody together this year at mid-year uh, at Shakopee, especially with uh, Shakopee being a leader and a, and a partner, co-founder with our, our, uh, our Farm Bill Coalition uh, and really kind of helping with that. Uh, and that go, all goes hand in hand. So as we try to try to make inroads and expand the opportunities in the Farm Bill for Indian country and ag producers, we also know that climate change affects that. So uh, we wanted to highlight that and this was just a great place to, to be able to do that. And, and something that we haven't really done in the past is have a central theme that just dealt with the environment. I think we've had a lot of really great panels and speakers uh, around a variety of subjects. Do you have one that stands out to you? I'd like to say mine, but I, I won't I won't go there. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it's it's always interesting. And, and I'm, I'm probably I've probably taken on a different view now. Where before, when I was a tribal leader, I really listened to, okay, how does that affect me? And, 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 uh, how, what can I take from that? Now as executive director, I'm looking at the crowd saying, okay, are they affected by this? And are we on the right track? And so, and, and just talking with people after the different speakers or panels, hearing their reaction to it and the, them saying, wow, that was a great panel or, or wow, that this is a great speaker. That means that we're hitting the right, hitting the right buttons and, and making sure that we have people that are here that people want to hear and are, are getting something from it. So probably like saying, who's your favorite kid? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying all of them. Oh, good. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of great uh, topics and it, it hasn't just been environment. Uh, there are a lot of issues facing Indian country. You know, in your opinion, what are some of the other uh, high areas of priority? You know, I think right now the biggest one for Indian country that everybody's waiting for is the Brackeen decision that affects our Indian Child Welfare Act and, and what that means uh, for our children in, in Indian country. And just the, the potential for the impact of that decision, depending on how they respond, could have a domino effect for other things. And it's a, it's a direct attack on tribal sovereignty. And, uh, it's, it's not just one thing. It's okay. What, what next? And so, you know, obviously this is something that, uh, is not negotiable for us. Uh, those are our children. And this law has stood uh, for a long time and has been effective. And, uh, any change in it is, is just not something Indian country is willing to, to tolerate. And, and so we're ready to fight. The, the next fight and, and what, whatever that may look like, we don't know yet, but I think, uh, you know, if I had to pick one, that's, that's probably the biggest one right now. I think no matter what happens, the National Congress of American Indians will definitely be an organization that uh, launches efforts across Indian country to ensure our voices are unified and heard, uh, whatever we have to do. Absolutely. There's a couple other organizations that NCAI partners with, um, the Native American Rights Fund, the um, Indian Gaming Association. Uh, talk a little bit about those partnerships and how they help amplify uh, the work that everybody's doing. Yeah, it's it's been great to kind of reestablish or, or establish that relationship uh, for me in this role to make sure that we are doing everything that we can to be a good partner. And Neither, none of our organizations can do everything alone and there's strength in number amongst our organizations. And so if, if, uh, the Indian Gaming Association is, is working on an issue, how can NCI help and, and vice versa? And, and so we deal with the, a lot of the same tribes. We deal with all of the same congressional members and administration. 
And so just just that show of unity and um, and getting out of those kind of silos shows everyone that we're dealing with that that we're connected. We know what each other is doing and we support each other. And and I think by default, as NCAI is the oldest organization in Indian country, we kind of have the megaphone to amplify all of our messages. And, and we need that strength in numbers from the organizations. And so Indian Gaming Association, NARF, NIHB, um, the, the Farm Bill Coalition, you know, all of these entities are all trying to do work in Indian country and to, to the betterment of Indian country. And NCI wouldn't be doing its part if we're not standing there right with them and saying, what can we do to help? I agree. Um, despite, you know, the challenges that Indian country faces, there's a lot of things to be hopeful for and a lot of things to be inspired by. Do you have anything in particular that comes to mind? I'm inspired by the fact that here in a couple months, we're going to be celebrating 80 years of NCAI. And to know that it was founded on defending sovereignty on many different levels. Um, I'm inspired by the, the, the fact that Indian country still stands behind NCAI and sees the importance of NCAI. NCAI might not have always been doing everything it needed to be doing. Uh, there might have been challenges. But I think what's exciting for me is to see the growth that we've taken in, in essentially less than a year, knowing that we still have a ways to go. But uh, we're putting that, you know, working on building the trust and, and confidence of Indian country to say, okay, NCAI is, is uh, doing the work. And so for me, that's very proud to be part of that. And our team that we have that just works tirelessly and are dedicated and want to carry out the mission. And, and so to carry that into 80th, uh, our 80th conference, our 80th year, and, and hear the excitement already building up for it. Um, maybe it has a little bit to do with being in New Orleans, but uh, I like to think that it's the 80th year and it's election year for us. And so who's going to be the first leaders to take us into the next 80 years? So it's an exciting time to be part of it. And, uh, you know, again, it's it's an opportunity to say we're only as strong as our numbers. And so we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to to show Indian country why they need to be part of NCAI. So that's exciting for me. That is exciting. And I know for me, it's exciting, too, because I get to participate right. and, and be part of the work as the Midwest Area VP. So. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, thank you for all the good work you do across Indian country. And we look forward to seeing you at the 80th in New Orleans. Yes, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm here with NCAI President Fawn Sharp. Uh, we just wrapped up the 79th Mid-Year Convention here at Mystic Lake Casino and Hotel. Fun. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, it's such an honor to be here and I can't believe it's already over. I know, right? It was such an amazing week and we had a lot of great topics, a lot of great speakers. Um, what do you think some of the highlights of the week were? I think some of the highlights were just hearing from our, our federal partners. Uh, we heard from the White House. We heard from the uh, White House Council on Native American Affairs, from Secretary Holland. Uh, from our new desk at OMB. And so we really had a, an opportunity to directly engage with them on the direction of Indian country and the, the coming year, as well as the, the budget side. And for a long time, we've always had these aspirational goals and conversations with various agencies, but never knowing, you know, the budget score. And so it, it was, it was really nice to have a, a native woman 
who is now inside OMB so that we know that we can uh, not only take our, our vision, but actually work to, to make that a reality. Um, and one of the big issues that I've been advancing as, as president of NCI for a long time is uh, a report called the Broken Promises Report. And that comprehensively details the chronic underfunding of tribal nations, uh, whether it's healthcare, law enforcement, our, our judicial systems. And so we asked her pointedly the question, are they directly incorporating that work into redefining and creating a Marshall Plan for Indian Country? And we heard a positive answer to that. And so that's a, a systemic, longstanding, chronic issue that generations of tribal leaders have tried to close. So for me, that was a highlight. I think another highlight was just uh, we were waiting for the Burkine case. Uh, a decision out of the United States Supreme Court. And here at NCI, we were prepared Monday morning and this morning, Thursday, we are we are ready to ensure that as soon as that decision is dropped, we have a public statement. Uh, we have a number of scenarios anticipated and we have calls to action for tribal leaders. And so we were able to convey that message here to uh, every tribal leader in attendance that NCI is prepared, we're ready, and we're gonna aggressively defend tribal sovereignty and our children. And that's just a couple of issues, but we had uh, just a wide range of other topics here. It, yeah, it was a, a great week. And uh, well, Indian country faces a lot of issues and things that we uh, have to constantly defend, there's a lot of really good work going on across Indian country. Can you tell us a little uh, about some of the things that might make you hopeful or inspired? Yes, um, I think the couple of things that make me very hopeful, uh, we've really made some adjustments here at NCAI to enlist what I call the brain trust of Indian country, all of our partners, uh, NIHB, NICWA, and, and you can see the work that that is transpiring. And from last year to, to this year, we now have advanced appropriations in IHS, which is another uh, legacy uh, project that for generations, tribal leaders have tried to, to make inroads there. And so that was a, another shining bright of, of star of success here that we highlighted. And we were able to also talk with our, our NICWA um, uh, relatives, and I've been calling them relatives because we're all like a family. It's, it's not just a partnership, but we have this family of uh, intertribal organizations. And I think that's the real strength of Indian country. And we proved it again in the Violence Against Women reauthorization and further expanding tribal sovereignty. And so all across the, the spectrum where there's threats to our children, threats to our health care, threats to uh, our natural world and the climate crisis, we're finding that the strength of Indian country really does lie within our sovereign tribal nations and, and the brain trusts our subject matter experts. And our role here at NCI is to really get behind and support the vision of tribal leaders. And when they come to the Congress and they have resolutions, they can enlist the voice of all of Indian country to amplify and unleash that voice in support of their um, initiative. So in my mind, that provides a lot of hope. Well, we are getting ready to go into uh, 80 years of NCAI yes. Yes. Uh, at the convention in November. Uh, you've uh, been president for the last couple terms. Um, yes. Are there anything you're particularly proud of uh, during your tenure as NCAI president? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for the question. Uh, this is my final, down to the final few months. Uh, my my term is, a, I serve two two-year terms, and so I'm term limited out. When I initially ran, uh, my, my, my goals were, one, to ensure that the National Congress of American Indians would not remain a, a D.C. lawyer lobbyist-centric nonprofit organization that didn't really have relevancy and where tribal leaders had to basically fight to get issues advanced. I remember there were times where when I served as president of my tribe, it was it was difficult to to overcome certain barriers, including getting a call for the, the quiet crisis report that ultimately ended up in the, the broken promises update. Uh, that was a challenge to get through the whole process. 
I'm very proud that NCI has really become that Congress of Sovereign Tribal Nations and that we're able to uh, unleash the voice of all of Indian country and create a, a direct line from grassroots directly here uh, to our annual convention, because that is the original vision of the, the founders. They knew that uh, in an era of termination that we had to come together and, and unify and solidify, galvanize the voice of sovereign tribal nations that collectively we could confront any threat. And so that's a, a significant. The other that is is personally I'm, I'm very proud of, uh, I've done a lot of work in the climate crisis. My tribe uh, is having to move its villages to higher ground. I've worked in international law and policies uh, since my very first term as a, as a tribal president way back in 2006. And this, through my tenure here at NCI, we've received diplomatic credentials to participate in UN climate negotiations. We've received invites uh, to address the World Economic Forum, the World Trade Organization. In a couple of weeks, I'll be traveling to Geneva, Switzerland to address the UN expert mechanism on the rights of indigenous peoples as uh, the NCI president. And so we've wanted to rise above all of the, the politics here in the United States, get out of that defensive game where we're fighting just for survival and just for acknowledgement and to gain visibility and to elevate our voice to that higher policy field where other countries around the world support and value the, the right, inherent right of tribal nations to have a decisive say over our lands, resources, territories, and people. And in my mind, the United States, I mean, they were the last country to sign on to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And our battle has constantly been with them. But I, I just have a great deal of hope and optimism and very proud that we've been able to really elevate our voice globally. And, and not only just to be at the table, but to be leading at the table where other countries are, are following our lead. So that I'm very proud of. Well, thank you so much, President Sharp, for your service to all of Indian country. Um, and to your people for supporting you and sharing you uh, with us. And, uh, you know, from a personal standpoint, it's been an honor to work alongside you uh, and see the changes that have happened at NCAI, but all the positive outcomes for Indian country. So thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, and we'll see you at the annual. We'll see you in New Orleans. Yes. yes. And thank you again for your hospitality here. It's just a memorable, wonderful event and just your leadership here and within the board. It's just been truly an honor to serve with you as well. So see you. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm here uh, this afternoon with President Robert Deuce Larson uh, from Lower Sioux Indian Community. There's lots of amazing things going on in Indian country around environmental sustainability. Uh, one of the projects at Lower Sioux is Hempcrete, uh, which is super environmentally friendly. And I'd like to uh, talk to President Larson a little bit about their initiatives around Hempcrete at Lower Sioux. Can you tell us a little? Sure, Rebecca. This all started with our Vice President Earl Pendleton's talk and research came to the council talking about hemp, which not a lot of people know about, but we've learned a lot in the last even five years. His thought was, you have a product that when you build a house out of hempcrete is fireproof, it's pest proof, mold resistant, and helps the air quality in the home. So all of the disparities that we have Lung issues are huge in Indian country. This product actually traps the carbon in your walls of your home and keeps it there. It sequesters the carbon. It has great thermal capabilities, so you don't need a traditional furnace or an air conditioner per se. It regulates the temperature in your home. And 
he talked to the council about it. We've been growing our own hemp now for four years. And the thought was, the dream was, we plant our own, harvest it, process it, and build with all of our own hemp to keep the cost down as much as possible. Not having to ship it out to get processed or buy someone else's herd. And we've got a good group of folks that took the training. We've got our mix mix master, which happens to be my son, Robert Larson Jr., who learned how to get the correct hemp and lime ratios because it's a little bit different whatever region you're in with the weather. And Danny Desjardins is our construction person, and Joey Goodthunder is our farmer. These guys have been learning and practicing, and we've built a hemp shed that we've donated to our elders for the powwow. That's their stand, just to try to get people to be able to come and see it. Something you can actually, it's tangible. You can touch it, feel it, walk inside. And that's been the dream. We are working right now building a processing facility. So we've got bales ready to go. We are starting this year with our pilot project. We're going to build a hempcrete home and a standard regular stick-built home and do a comparison so that we can see the energy costs, the air quality, even the pests, the bugs, the mice, they don't go through it. Wow, that's exciting. So not only are you looking to provide housing that's more environmentally friendly, but is this going to have a positive economic impact on your tribal nation also? That is what we are looking at now. If we can get a processor that is large enough and get enough of the local farmers to grow so it's not just us, this actually could become a lucrative business for the tribe. That's amazing. I can't wait to see how your study goes, and hopefully maybe we can follow up with you next year to hear about uh, how the pilot project went. President Larson, thank you so much for being with us today. You bet. Thank you. I'm here with Vice President Shelley Buck from the Prairie Island Indian Community, who is also an alternate vice president for the Midwest region uh, for NCAI. Uh, We're here at the NCAI Mid-Year Conference. Um, Much of it is about environmental sustainability, and the Prairie Island Indian community has um, some really neat goals around net zero. Can you share a little bit about that? Definitely. First, thanks for having me on. We've got some big goals, big dreams going on with our net zero project. About three years ago, we received money from the state to do a net zero project to offset approximately 20 pounds of carbon that we generate with renewable energy. Uh, That's about 75 oil tanker cars. So that's that's a lot that we generate. And we'll start, we've started with electrification already. We're doing a five acre solar garden for the community and the the casino and our businesses. Uh, We're doing geothermal, a huge geothermal project to help with the heating and cooling. And then we're also, uh, the next phase will be working on the community homes and really uh, going in and doing a survey of what is going on, what it needs, what they can do, whether it's solar, wind, small little wind things, or or what exactly they can do there and uh, helping them with grants so they can do those changes to really help Mother Earth. That's amazing. So it's not only from a tribal government perspective, but also for individual community members. Correct. And when we uh, went for the money, In the bill, we agree to do any projects we do from here on out will adhere to a higher standard 
to make sure that in the future we continue with trying to protect Mother Earth. I think tribal nations are definitely on the forefront of environmental sustainability, and I think this is a good example of that. Um, What role do you think tribal sovereignty plays in environmental initiatives across Indian country? I think tribal sovereignty helps in all aspects. Um, We're able to use that power and that that ability that we have as sovereign nations to really be at the table and, and do the government to government and educate other governments on what's the best way of doing things and, and ways that they can change to make something better. And I think having that sovereignty helps us get to the table. It, it gives us that, that power, that uh, ability where we may not otherwise have if we didn't have that sovereignty. Vice President Buck, thank you so much for being with us today and congratulations and good luck on your net zero efforts. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm here with Wayne Ducheneau, the Executive Director of the Native Governance Center. Uh, We're here at the NCAI conference, uh, which is all about environmental sustainability, among other things. Wayne, thanks so much for being with us today. Rebecca, as always, a pleasure to be with you. Um, So I just want to talk a little bit about um, environmental sustainability and climate resilience and a little bit about tribal sovereignty. So what role do you think tribal sovereignty plays in environmental sustainability and climate resilience across Indian country? Well, I think not only across Indian country, but across the world, the indigenous wisdom as it relates to climate change stewardship in particular, we're seeing more and more Western civilization finally realizing that as original stewards of the land, Native people know how best to take care. I think one of the best examples that comes to my mind is if we look at the proliferation of wildfires in the Pacific Northwest, where tribal control was returned to forest conservation and protection, wildfires proliferated all around there. But in that area where the tribe controlled the the conservation efforts, because they did things like burning the ground and taking care of the land, uh, we saw wildfires not permeate into their nation. And so I think one of the biggest things that the United States government, other entities can learn is how we used to steward the land and how those traditional ways can really impact the resiliency then they're from. I, I agree. I think tribal nations are really leading the way on climate resilience uh, in, in a lot of different ways. I think of some of the things we do here at SMSC to protect the waters, to uh increase water quality and to protect resources like wild rice. Um, What are some of the other things that you know of that tribal nations are doing to be more sustainable and climate resilient? I think one of the most fascinating things recently are is the amount of co-management agreements that tribal nations are having with the federal government. We look at the grasslands in South Dakota. We look at the Black Hills forest issues where the federal government, through their various different agencies, are returning to partnerships with the tribes around management, understanding that then the tribes can help best take care on those indigenous practices we were talking about. The most recent example I know of is the Rosebud Sioux Tribe partnered with the state of South Dakota and the Federal Fish and Wildlife Service, I believe, to co-manage the South Dakota National Grasslands south of Pierre, South Dakota. And through that initiative, they're going to be able to make sure that indigenous practices for stewarding the lands are going to take care of. I know they're looking at introducing uh, species that have since moved out, including buffalo, as a way to help take care and bring the grasslands back to life. When I think about waterways in particular, I think of some of the tribes in the Pacific Northwest recently who are doing things like working with the federal government to undam rivers, right? To take those dams down, to allow for natural flows to occur, for salmon spawns to return to the way that they used to be. And so I think there's just all types of initiatives out there in Indian country. 
And I think, you know, this conference is a lot about uh, environmental sustainability, but there are a ton of issues facing Indian country. Um, and I think environmental sustain- sustainability is facing all of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nice to see tribes on the forefront. What other issues do you think are really pressing in Indian country right now? First and foremost in my mind is the, the Brackeen case that the Supreme Court uh, any day now, they're predicting early as Thursday, which is tomorrow for us as we're talking. Uh, and that's on the Indian Child Welfare Act and the constitutionality thereof. I think we both know that there are many implications to the unwinding of ICWA, to the attempt to classify Native peoples as a racial or ethnicity, and disregard the distinct political status we have based in treaty and trust responsibility. And so for me, when I think about what is the most pressing concern is what is the court going to do about Brackeen? Because there's a cascading effect if they rule against tribal sovereignty there that's going to affect everything from the Indian Healthcare Improvement Act to the American Indian Religious Freedom Act and the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. If the Supreme Court steps back the ideals of tribal sovereignty, we could see a monumental shift in the federal Indian uh, federal relationship to Indian country. I know that's an issue everybody has been watching closely. Uh, we were hoping we'd have a decision, so that could be a topic of conversation at this conference. But maybe tomorrow we're, we're prepared to address that uh, if it does come out. Despite some of the issues facing Indian country, there are a lot of really amazing things going on. Um, you know, what are what are some of the the hopes and dreams you have for Indian country or some of the progress that you think uh, provides a lot of inspiration? Along with this return to the understanding of co-management and giving tribes back control in the destiny of climate resilience and change, I think one of the biggest things we're seeing now is the land back movement, right? Whether it's the Lower Sioux Indian community and getting the return of their land, Boyce Fort, Leech Lake, we're seeing examples more and more of federal government, state government, individual people understanding that it's important for people to consider returning land back to tribes, right? Um, and I think people should realize whether, no matter where you live in this country, your right to occupy that space germinates from tribal sovereignty, right? It doesn't come from the United States of America. It doesn't come from the state of Minnesota or South Dakota, like we're from. It germinates in tribal sovereignty, whether it was ceded through treaty or outright stolen land. Uh, so I think the land back movement is something that really gives me hope as we're seeing more and more people, entities, governments return land to tribal control. Thanks so much for being with us today, Wayne. Uh, I can't forget to say you were the very first guest on this podcast. So it's nice to visit with you again. And as always, thank you so much for being with us. You can have me on your show anytime. I'm here this afternoon at NCAI with Chairman Ernie Stevens, Jr., uh, chair of the Indian Gaming Association, formerly known as the National Indian Gaming Association. Uh, Chairman Stevens, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Great honor. Uh, Chairman, so we've heard a, a lot of pressing issues at this conference, such as environmental sustainability, the Violence Against Women Act, and the 2023 Farm Bill. In your view, what are some of the biggest issues facing Indian country right now? You know, those are obviously those just those three all by themselves is a giant uh, point of discussion. And, and you hear the leadership, the buzz in the in the hallway and all the, every place we travel throughout this conference. This is the you know most visible tribal uh, leader conference in the country at, at this time of the year. So I think, you know, those three points for me, uh, the, the we uh, we mobilize the uh, NIGA NCI task force now called the IGA NCI task force. And so we, we mobilized that by a call to action with President Fawn Sharp. 
And, and we did that a, a few weeks ago in Washington, D.C. But it was, it, it, was, it was quiet and we got our work done. But here there was so much more energy. There was the crowd, the atmosphere was big. The crowd was very active and very supportive. And I think that's the biggest thing is that people really have to know that we're not going to just start having meetings every week. But we are mobilized to speak to this issue as 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 we uh, as we anticipate and wait for the um, Supreme Court uh, case coming down related to uh, Indian child welfare. There's more cases that are moving around related to gaming and economic development, mostly just tribal sovereignty as a whole. So we're trying to get folks to understand whatever subject matter it is. It's giant. It's giant. And we really got to pay attention to it. And we have to go to work on it. You know, when we were young, we were very loud about it, you know, and we still need to be loud about it. But we have to be precise. And I think that's really what the tribal leaders bring to the table. So we have a lot of people that were involved in the discussion this week centered around. Again, we try to talk about Supreme Court cases rather than have to break them all down, uh, whether it's uh, a Brackeen or, or Maverick. You know, it, th- these different things are a direct att- attacks to tribal sovereignty. And, and they're not really attacks to these, to these uh, Indians with casinos. That's how they try to project it. They're attacks to all Indians, whether they have a gaming or not, whether they have economic development. In many cases, some still do not. So, so these things are, are attacks on our sovereignty. No matter who they are, where they are, Native America is under attack in a very legal, diplomatic, but equally threatening way. And, and it's really important for us to understand that we have to stand up. So we're not out there. My friend on the, on the radio in there, he's kind of, a, he's an activist minded. And so we get pumped up that way. But in this case, with the mobilization of the IGNCI task force, we're trying to get pumped up in a legal, diplomatic and an educational mode because we have to teach. That's the most important thing is people have to understand that they are the teachers now and they have to te- teach their congressmen. The senators, their staffers, state hall, state uh, um, legislative hallways, wherever to have people understand what tribal sovereignty is really all about. Because, you know, we've been winning a lot over the years, not because we're lucky or not to, for them to feel sorry for us, not because we have a casino. We're winning because, as Mr. John Eckhawk would be the first to tell you, that our treaties are the supreme law of the land. And people want that to go away because some of tribes have some things, some tribes don't, but they don't care. They just want us to go away. They liked it when the lack of equal laws allowed them to dilute Indian country and send our children to wherever and let, let them be abused and, and, and treated poorly and get a poor education. People liked it then. Now that we protect, they don't like that. They, they, they like us to be quiet and off to yeah. the reservation. So now and we I, have to work even harder to defend all those things. Yeah. And like you said, the, the IGA Indian Gaming Association and the National Congress of American Indians have partnered. But the National Congress partners with other organizations like the Native American Rights Fund. And mm-hmm. so we can really uh, have a, a united front in some of these attacks. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of um, those joint efforts across organizations that support Indian country? You know, when when it's all done, it comes back to the heart of our communities. That's where it ends and that's where it starts. But we would be lost without 
people like John Echohawk and the Native American Rights Fund or some of the regional organizations or the uh, tribal state organizations because it's, 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 it's imperative for us to put our resources together. And when we have people like the Native American Rights Fund has to get this, uh, John Echohawk has a lot of responsibility. And him and his team have saved so many tribes, have helped so many tribes, often with tribes who have nothing. But, you know, there's tribes that have a lot of success and a lot of uh, opportunities and jobs. But the legal part, not just the strategy, but working together and collaborating, a lot of it is facilitated through the leadership of the Native American Rights Fund. So whether it's NARF, NAFOA, uh, National Congress of American Indians, the Indian Gaming Association, we all have to be united and working together. I think that's what creates the success. And, you know, us Indians, you know, my father always told me, once you get the Indians around the table, we can figure this out. But sometimes you wonder when you're around the table, you figure, try to figure out, well, that, I, me, dad said this is going to work, you know. But sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it takes a long time. Maybe I should say it doesn't. Sometimes it takes longer get these points across, to collaborate and educate and understand. That's what we have to do now more than ever. We have to sit around the table, collaborate, educate, and understand to defend tribal sovereignty. I couldn't agree more, and I think that's one of the best parts about Indian country is our ability to get around the table, come up with creative solutions. And if they don't work, we're resilient people, and we pivot and we go from there. Um, I guess finally, just to wrap up, what are what are some of your hopes and dreams for Indian country in the next 10, 20 years? Hopes and dreams. You know, I wrap myself, especially around graduations. It's it's emotional, you know, because I watched uh, my Ernie Stevens four graduate. He's big as big as I am, but he's bigger and thicker than I ever was when I was his age. You know, and he can speak the language. He wears a bestowa. He can dance, plays lacrosse, plays basketball. And, and he gave the opening in his uh, graduating class. He's one Indian kid. The, the impact that he has on his friends, his friends on him, the world has a giant and, and prominent future ahead for these guys. And I'm very, very excited about them. But the most thing I'm excited about is the women's influence on these guys and how they, they, they lead. Women are leaders in Indian country. And whether they're young ones or they're elder ones like my mother, my mother turned um, 84 today, I believe. So she's still very active and still busy, you know. So I think what I'm excited about is how people really understand not just the, the, the priority to defend our, 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 our women and, 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 our, and, our, and our elders, but how much of a priority that is. And if you really look at it for me, you know, I have a beautiful dad. He's in an Oneida nursing home. Ernie Stevens Sr. has an amazing legacy. However, his mother, my mother, my daughters, and now my granddaughters all have helped to raise me. My granddaughter's telling me what to do now. <laughs> but my wife, I've been with, we've been friends for 40-some years. She's the best teacher I've ever had in my life. So I'm inspired and excited about what Indian country has in their future because we are steering away from the old stereotypes. They no longer take all these Indian kids in, the, in, in a church and then say, this one's going to Pipestone, this one's going to Flangeville, and this one's going to Haskell, and that one's going to Jamawa. And then see you later, get your back, pack your bags, we don't care what your parents think. Don't do that anymore. 
Those mm-hmm. kids still go to those schools, but they go to the schools they like, yeah. they where, the, where their friends are. And then when they get done with that, they go to college. My last example, and to, I, I, I beg on, because I'm proud of my daughters. My boys are good boys too. Uh, but but I, my youngest daughter, Dr. Lois Stevens, and this is the real powerful thing about Indian country. She went to the Oneida Head Start, then the Oneida Preschool, then the Oneida Elementary School, and then the Oneida High School, and then Haskell Indian Nations University. She went to every, all tribal education until she stepped foot on the Kansas University campus as a grad student, and she flourished. So the real reflection is that, is that our future is so powerful because Indian education is so powerful. Indian family is so powerful. Standing together and protecting is so powerful. And, and uh, the more we can articulate that and expand that and stand together, the more strong we'll be in any country. So I use my own, not to brag, but it's my own life, you know. And so I, I can't talk about all five of my kids, but Dr. Lois Stevens, tribally educated young woman leader, is now an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. And she, did, she got her boost that led her into that extra education all that education, the priority, the, the, the major percentage of education comes from Indian country, Indian administrators, Indian teachers are people who work for Indian country. So our future is bright. It's yeah. bright because Indian country is bright. And we just look ahead. A lot of these stumbling blocks we talk about every day, those are things that these people who are bright are going to help us take care of. And we're preparing them for that responsibility. A lot of them are taking it on now. My, my, Dr. Lois Stevens is only 34 years old, and uh, she got big brothers yeah. and sisters. She got grandma, you know, and she got gran- grandpa at the nursing home. She knew her great-grandmother who survived five boarding schools, you know. And um, so I think that, that for me, the excitement is, is, yeah, there's challenges, and we're ready to go to work. We're ready to go to battle anytime. But I'm excited about, especially around graduation, all these these young people taking another step forward. Very excited about that. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Our next generation is definitely an inspiration for us to keep doing the work we're doing. And Chairman Stevens, thank you so much for joining us today and and sharing a little bit about you and the work you do. Thank you. Great opportunity to sit with you today. I'm here with Cecilia Fire Thunder from Oglala uh, Sioux Nation. She is currently the Oglala Lakota Nation Education Coalition President. Um, Cecilia, welcome and thanks for being here today. Um, I also have to say Cecilia is more than just the president of the Education Coalition. She's also a dear friend and mentor and so much more to me, but also many of us young women across Indian country. So thank you for that, too. But thanks for joining us, Cecilia. Thank you. Um, so we're at NCAI this week talking about lots of things from uh, environmental sustainability to the Violence Against Women Act to the Farm Bill uh, Coalition on uh, just lots of big issues facing Indian country. Uh, can you maybe tell us, share with us a little bit about, in your view, what are some of the biggest issues facing Indian country right now? Right now, to me, the biggest issue and the biggest challenge, which has solution. Is providing safety, sustainability for our children because they are the future. So despite what we do around us in environment, despite all that stuff, until we really provide a nice pathway for our children, it doesn't matter what we do. 
externally. So internally, we have to then continue to work at strengthening everything we're doing on the ground, education, parenting, healthcare, so our children can be strong and they can learn and one day they can give back by being doctors, nurses, archaeologists, bus drivers, whatever profession they choose to take care of themselves by providing themselves the income and a way of life. I couldn't agree more. Our children are definitely one of our most precious resources Mm -hmm. and hope for the future. Tell us some of the work you're doing um, to ensure the the safety and thriveability of our next generation. Every, as far as, so I represent schools that are considered 197 or BIE schools. We have 156 of those schools in Indian country and 27 states. These schools are the, the responsibility under the financial jurisdiction of the Bureau of Indian Affairs under the Department of Interior. And then and when Senator Aberesk successfully passed the 638 a bill back in 1973 or 74, two of our schools on Pine Ridge were the first ones to go local controlled. So that meant to create a system which included getting fam- a community to be on boards of directors and taking total responsibility, everything from A to Z and running a school, financial cir- uh, curriculum, the whole ga- game. Anyway, so, and so my school, Little One School on the Pine Ridge Reservation in Kyle, South Dakota, was incorporated in 1977. And we've been moving, teaching, learning, guiding, and our board of directors is elected from the community. And so we have out of nine communities or nine districts, seven of those districts, we, we, we pick up the children to come to our school. So we have five board members and we have four-year terms. So I'm going into my 20th year on the school board. And my, what my job is as a school board member is to make sure, and our board, we make sure we hire the kind of staff to run the school from A to Z, from dietary, bus, driving, roads, maintenance, facilities, heaters, and the whole gear. And then over here, the curriculum, to make sure that the curriculum we have for uh, elementary, middle, and high school is going to be strong. And then on top of that, we make sure we bring teachers in the classroom that are uh, engaged in making sure our children are learning. So the responsibility is great to educate our children. The really important piece that is really coming about even stronger is the language and culture. It's interesting that in our tribal community, sometimes it takes us longer to really implement language and culture programs, only because we have generations of families who are denied to learn those things in a classroom. So we have some other, the healing work we have to do to get the families to be okay about their child learning how to be Lakota again. Uh, So we have all these issues. The other piece that's really important for me and for my board right now is therapeutic services. So our children many times um, uh, are traumatized early on. And so, right, so for many years, Indian Health Service, which provides therapeutic services, behavioral health services to our communities, were not um, prepared to work with children. So providing therapeutic services for children requires special kind of training, you know. And so what we're doing at my school is that we got a SAMHSA grant. <clears throat> it's called Projects Aware, a SAMHSA grant to develop methods of working with our high school students on some of their pains, their boo-boos, and working with them. We were really fortunate enough to provide two methods, the Western method 
And then we've incorporated the Lakota method, the sweat lodges and, you know, stuff like yeah. that. So we, the, the child can go either way. And then so we were able to create this along with the staff. Our own people are providing the services because many of them are bachelors in counseling. Then on top of that, we're providing um, courses for them to understand the history of our nation. So they understand the different kinds of traumas that our children are experiencing versus children in Rapid City. It's, it's important that, you know, there's different uh, understanding that. So what we've done is we've been able to create a large pool of work helpers with our children. And then we connect with the local university like South Dakota State. And then so we can do distance learning. And then we do really intensive work, tr- uh, training to get them to understand our model of uh, healing our, working with healing our children. That's been really been exciting. And then the other thing is there's six 197 schools, the Little One School, because it's the largest. We have the strongest financial um, foundation. So we're able to then get grants. And then so what we are, as we get the grants and then we make sure the our feeder schools, our, our other schools are getting the services. So all they have to do is make sure people are trained to work with children and their needs. But worry about paying the bills, we'll deal with that. I think that's wonderful. Um, and it's a great example and inspiration for the rest of Indian country mm-hmm. to approach uh, educating our next generation in a different way and a more holistic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's really great. Can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of maybe BIE funds and grants and education in Indian country? Uh, the the, um, the treat, It's a treaty obligation. Article 6 of the Constitution of the United States says that treaties are the supreme law of the land. 1868 treaty with my people in the, in the Great Plains region identifies like four areas within that treaty that pertain to education. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs, it was the agency within the government, it's responsible to make sure the resources are there to educate our children, teachers, salaries, bosses, whatever. However, it's been, it's been a while, but we are now taking ownership of increasing our budget. So the BIE is a federal agency. They cannot lobby for themselves, you know. So it's up to us at like TBAC or somewhere to give them, this is the numbers we're going to, uh, we want you to, these numbers we want. However, they can't go and ask for that money. It's up to us. Good board members, tribal council people, we have to go talk to the appropriators. We have to talk to the senators and congressmen and then collectively and then really get out there. So when that issue comes in front of that committee, they'll know, okay, I'll vote yes on that. So we have to educate the, uh, you know, appropriators. And so this is what we do really well. And we're learning to do it better and better and better. So our job and my job as a school board member is to continue to share share with the other board members and other people how to do this. And like to even tribal leaders, come on, you guys, you have to go talk to that senator, that congressman, come on, you know, and make them do their job. So if your people elect you, you get yourself out there, learn the process, know which, who chairs what committee. And many times the committee members may not have any Indians. So we have to also educate them on the treaty or educate them to remind them of the provisions in the Constitution that makes them have to be responsible for the treaties because we gave up land, water, mountains, everything, so they could have a place to live. And all they have to do is make sure we get the resources. And 
Despite having promised those resources, we still, as tribal leaders, former tribal leaders, school board member, have to continue to advocate for our people and our resources. Um, so don't even get me started on that one. And it's over, I like, I know Tina Smith from Minnesota, our representative, we don't have to educate them. We just have to give them updated data and information because that's what drives them. So if you give them updated data and information, it's not emotional, it's not whatever. These are what, okay, so the data and information, many of them like that better. And so we don't, all we do is keep them updated, but then we have to go to the states where there's no Indians and, and reach their senators and Congress people. Yeah. And that's the challenge. It's because invariably they'll have a vote. We don't have to deal with ours because you know they'll support us, so we need to reach the other members of the House and the Senate. I agree. Well, despite um, all the wonderful work being done across Indian country, we still have a long way to go. Um, But I think one of the things about our people is our resilience and uh, ability to just keep going uh, for the things that we need so we can fulfill our hopes and dreams. Um, And speaking of that, what's one of your uh, hopes and dreams for Indian country in the next 10 years? I think for me, my hopes and dreams for Indian country is that we all help each other and work on issues collectively. Something in my community may not be what you need, but my my time to reach my senator congressman to help you. So we have to then understand and the issues and then and then support one another. Uh, you have Indian tribes that don't have tribal schools. You have other issues. But rather than saying, well, we don't have that or we don't have that, what you do is you say, okay, what do you need me to do? And collectively help each other because that's the key. I have to share, uh, I have to share a really important story. When I was a tribal president, I was under a lot of fire because of my strong position on women's rights to choose. And as an Indian woman, as a woman, my body belongs to me. No one has a say-so over it. And I, I decide and choose who and when I want to be intimate with. I decide who and when I choose to have a child with. However, if I am impregnated because of an act of violence, sexual assault, rape, and or incest, that was not my choice and my doing. I don't have to carry that child to full. It's my body. It's my choice. Nobody has any business on what I do with my body. So needless to say, I've always been a real strong advocate of choice. And that included providing places where women can choose to let go of something that was created under act of violence. So needless to say, I caught a lot of fire. And so I got a phone call one day from the chairman of the Crow tribe. His name is Carl Van. He's no longer with us, but he called my, my assistant and said, hey, there's a chairman. I said, hi, hello. He said, oh, hi, Cecilia. Chairman Van, hi. He said, I want you to go home, pack your bags, get up here to Crow Agency, let us take care of you. Your people are killing you. <laughs> and the reason why it's funny is because the Crows and Lakotas were on opposite sides and the Crows were... Uh, the, the scouts and the helpers for George Custer and the Lakotas and Cheyenne, we went to uh, Little Bighorn and wiped out George Custer, you know. So there's always been this little, you know, button head between the crows and the Lakotas. So I said, I'll be right up. So I went and picked up my aunt, and it took us about eight hours to get up to Crow Agency. Next day, we went to the Montana-Wyoming tribal leaders, and then he said, come on over later. I said, okay, so we went. And they doctored me. 
So the I hate the curl people, the the the, uh, the spiritual people were there. They sat me down. They sang and they doctored me and using the eagle feather and smudge. They doctored me to remove all the bad things people threw on me, words and added, you know. And then they finished, and the Cheyennes came, and they doctored me, and then the Shoshones doctored me, and the Arapahoe doctored me. Mm. I left there completely light. The lesson in that is, this is what he said, Little Bighorn Battlefield. He said there was a time when we, as different tribes, were on different sides. Today, we have to set aside those differences and stand together. Because the greatest weapon we have is our treaties, our relationship with the United States government. Their obligation to us, no matter what tribe you are, is in writing. So let's set aside those differences and stand hand to hand and help each other. I love that. And I think, you know, this conference at the National Congress of American mm -hmm. Indians is a good example of us standing side by side as tribal nations, mm -hmm. tribal organizations, um, doing just that, kind of finding what we need collectively and where we can help each other out. So it's an honor to be able to chat with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Sure, you're very welcome. And I, I just love working with other Indians. And I just learn, like, I love learning about other Indians because we, there are things in history classes in whether what school you're at. And so that's the other thing. We want to include as much Indian history in our classrooms, um, whether it's elementary, middle, or high school, for our people to learn about each other more. And I, I'm looking forward to that. So I plan on doing this work until I drop dead. Well, thank you for all the work you do. We so appreciate your advocacy for whether it's children or women and mm -hmm. also your mentorship and um, everything else you bring to the table. So thank you. It. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.